Hey, it's Larry. Uh, Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Real quick, before we get into this episode, I had such an amazing, eye-opening, life-changing experience at the World Parkinson Congress in Kyoto that I want others to have that opportunity, too. So Becca Miller and I and 24 of our PD community friends have launched a year-long WPC Travel Grant Fundraiser. We're each doing a two-week Facebook fundraiser. Mine's underway right now because my birthday's January 9th. All the money raised will be used to help offset travel costs so more people with young-onset Parkinson's can attend the next WPC in Barcelona in 2022. You can search out details on the When Life Gives You Parkinson's Facebook page or donate directly to the WPC website. Go to wpc2022.org slash yopdfund. If you or your business would like to supply matching funds... Hey, good on you. Email me at parkinsonspot at curiouscast.ca. And now, on with the show. Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. My neurologist and I have started the DBS discussion. What exactly is deep brain stimulation? This is when life gives you Parkinson's. Joining me on this podcast journey is reporter and contributor Nikki Reitmeyer. Hey, Larry. Nikki, in the last podcast, The Extra Dosage Number 4, Season 2, my neurologist told my wife Rebecca and me that if my dyskinesia and my symptoms don't improve in the next six months, he is going to recommend that I queue up for that deep brain stimulation. Right. Brain surgery? You don't seem that bad. Well, I'm not. I'm the, you know, he, would, he, he didn't recommend it this time, so I'm not quite there yet. Uh, my motor symptoms are spreading to both sides which you expect with Parkinson's. I get a little dyskinetic every day. uh, And uh, Dr. Squires, my neurologist, now has increased my carbidopa levodopa to a medium-high level. Hmm. Um, Yeah, it's... Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound like a psychologist here, but how does that make you feel? Well, uh, grateful that the treatments exist and they can improve folks like me when our motor symptoms and our dyskinesia become unbearable. Uh, But, you know... Saying I'm full of gratitude is kind of a bullshit answer, too, because I am (laughs) scared to death of brain surgery. Uh, It makes me anxious and nervous. I think about my wife and my son and my family, and and then I get angry at myself and the disease. And, you know, at times it makes you want to give up, and at times you just want to wake up like like this is just a nightmare. Uh, So it's a lot to process, but, you know, it also represents hope. Yeah, I guess so, eh? I mean, I suppose that going under the knife for any surgery is serious business. But, you know, when we talk about brain surgery, when you talk about drilling into your skull, I mean, that is some serious, Mm -hmm. serious business. You must have like a million questions. I do, which is why we're dedicating this entire episode to DBS. Uh, You know, there's a lot of people that I depend on uh, for counsel and advice, and three of those people uh, have either had DBS or in line to get DBS. So I sat down with them to figure out what I'm in for. Uh, the first person I want to introduce you to, uh, Nikki, is uh, Becca Miller. And all these people have been on the podcast before. But right. Be- Becca and I met at the World Parkinson Congress, uh, the WPC in Kyoto, Japan, June 2019. Now, Becca's brilliant. She's a PhD and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Yale. She just co-authored a th- really thick book called Deprescribing in Psychiatry. Uh, and ironically, her neurologist first brought up DBS two years ago due to the amount of medication she was taking. My neurologist at the time... She was a, a, a movement disorder specialist. She brought it up in a very blasé way. She was like, oh, have you thought about DBS, you know? Um, and I really freaked out. Also because I had just heard 
from a good friend that her DBS had caused her to not be able to speak anymore, which sort of ended her working career. So I was sensitized to that. And then I also thought that it was like at least five more years down the road for me. And so she mentioned this and I was like, no, I haven't, I've heard of DBS, but I haven't really thought about it. She's like, oh, you could go to this support group. You know, there are people there who've had it and who are thinking about it. I started crying and I said, please stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) I really had a very strong reaction that was just basically like, I'm not thinking about this. I, I can't, you know. And for her, it was sort of like this, you know, it was like one of many, you know, of array of treatment options. For me, it's like, oh my gosh, this is the last stop and like, you're offering it to me now, and this means that, you know, this indicates, like, somehow the progression of Parkinson's for me. And and so it had much, much more symbolic meaning than just, like, and then it's also brain surgery, you know, just that other minor point. Right. So two years later, where are you at in this process? So actually, when I went to WPC, um, it was very clear to me that I was both much more dyskinetic and much taking much higher doses of medication than almost everybody that I met there, especially the people with Parkinson's. Um. <laughs> as, as we do, oh, what are you on? What are you taking? And you're like, I'm on so much more medication than everybody. What, 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 how does that make you feel? It was, it was disturbing. I mean, there's somewhat of, you know, you have bragging rights, like, oh, well, let me, let me tell you about my dosages, but that's not really like, that's cold comfort, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think that that was actually not, not long after um, David Sankster, Sankster had his DBS surgery. So this would be a great time to introduce David Sangster. He lives in the UK with his wife, Jane, and their two young kids. He was diagnosed at 28 years old. I caught up with him two weeks before his DBS surgery in spring of 2019. He was in a coffee shop waiting for Jane, and we connected via Skype. Hello? David. Hello? <laughs> how are you feeling right now? Zero to ten? Zero being the worst? Sure. I'd say about three. You are just a few weeks away from DBS surgery. I'm feeling okay about it. I'm ready for it, I think. You no, know, first, when, you, when you're first diagnosed, you think, no, no, I'm never having DBS. I don't, I'm never going to be dyskinetic. I'm never going to take too much levodopa. And I'm never going to have DBS. It still sounds so extreme into uh, uh, the disease. But after eight years, for me personally, I'm not afraid of the surgery anymore. And it's, um, when I first researched it, it was you know, quite a scary thought. But um, I mean, if I look at my children and think about the surgery, it you know, upsets me now. But... If I think about the benefits they'll get, you know, anyway, it's worth it. I, I wanted it originally about a couple of years ago, but I thought maybe not yet because my, my children are really small. Because I've, I've got two small children, you see. My wife just walked in the coffee shop. I'm just speaking oh. to, no, to Larry on the podcast. Well, can I talk to Jane? Hello. Uh, how are you feeling about the uh, DBS surgery in a few weeks? Um, kind of a bit nervous, but we're kind of excited at the same time. It's a bit strange, but... Yeah, hopeful. We're, we're, we're very positive. So, how have you talked to your kids about this? Um, well, they're quite young, really. So we've kind of just explained that Daddy's getting magic medicine. So not really. We said that he's going away for a few weeks. Okay. Um, but yeah, they're, they're quite young to understand, really. So. Do you have a uh, an image in your mind of what life will be like after DBS? 
um, being able to do more things and do more things with the children. Like be able to just go swimming and go on the bikes and just normal things really. So, yeah. What was the deciding factor? Just that David's been quite bad. The, the last 12 months have been quite bad. So um, it was just kind of what we have to do really to get his quality of life back. So uh, I left David and Jane at this point as I was intruding on their anniversary, Nikki, and their last date night before his brain surgery. You can hear a little bit of apprehension in his voice, eh? Well, and and Jane's. I mean, you Mm. can tell that, like, this is what we have to do, but like, ooh, boy, it's a lot. Not the most typical way to celebrate your anniversary by any means. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but you know, that's so important that you you, you normalize things as much as you yeah. can. Like, it, it can't all just be about Parkinson's. Like, as much as, you know, I say that out loud, but usually it's my wife telling that to me. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm so curious to know how it worked out for him. Well, a month after the DBS surgery, David and I connected again. Oh. Walk us yep. through what happened in the days leading up to the operation. It just got worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, things just got gradually worse. Um, the time you saw me was a point of when every time I took a medication, it was just um, it was just full dyskinesia. I got there on April the 29th on the Sunday evening. They kept me there till the, till the Wednesday. My operation was on the Wednesday. So that, that three days was just a full three days of contemplation, really. Um, so how were you feeling? So I was just scared, really. 37, so having the surgery at any point is, is scary enough for anybody, but when you're 37, with two young ch- children I'd left behind in Manchester, for all the good reasons and the reasons we'd come to decide to have the surgery in the first place, it still I still felt a little bit selfish actually going into the surgery. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't really need to do this, but I do need to do it. So it's really one of the biggest decisions I've ever had to make in my life, if not the biggest, so scary stuff. What time did Jane arrive? Well, she, well, that was the thing. She got there. She got there as I'd gone down for my 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 MRI scan. So when she got there, she thought I'd gone down to surgery, which was quite scary. So that's the thing with hospitals. As much as the the great places and you know, communications can sometimes be a bit crossed, so she was actually terrified. So we actually met in the lift in the elevator. Oh. She, they walked me down to anesthesia, and then um, and they obviously started to do the preparations. And also between that and um, and saying goodbye to Jane, it was about ten minutes, and that was it. That was. Um, Next thing I knew, I woke up. So I've had two two electrodes put into my brain. Obviously, then the wire connected to the battery. I'll I'll done in one one day, one one sitting. Some people have it done over two surgeries. Um, so the idea was to have it all done in one session, which is about half five and a half hours. But actually, the surgery took about another an extra an hour and a half, two hours with an extra hours for recovery because one of the one of the electrodes were, was moved two millimeters to the left. Um, which apparently makes all the difference. That was oh. my. So I think they woke me up once, and kind of like brought me around, but I wasn't quite. I remember. I remember seeing the surgeon twice, which obviously is a bit suspicious. Really, he's supposed to just wake <laughs> up in recovery. So I think they woke me up. Had, had some words, some questions for me, and then they put me back under. And for you, I was in recovery, talking about um, Formula One, which is a, a sport alike, um, for about three hours, I think. So talk about being switched on. What was that like? Well, it's it's it's. How can I describe it? Amazing. What's the uh, the one thing that you're really happy that you can do now that you couldn't do before? Be there when kids need me every time. Take them to school. Hopefully drive the car. Play the piano as well. Things, selfish things as well as, as well as the big things. But it's the small things, you know. It's, it's making the kids cereal. It's everything about my kids, really, because I'm a dad. So, but it's also being there for my wife and 
being being more more of a person that I used to be, and that's that's what it that's what it takes you back. It does definitely take you back some years, than but in a different way. It's not necessarily it doesn't drop you back in the like five years as you was then. It takes you back to uh, makes you feel less Parkinson. You know, mm-hmm. it's really hard to thing to describe. Had you forgotten who you were? Yeah, I think looking back. I knew who I knew who I was, but I didn't. I know I knew wasn't that. I knew who I wasn't the person I used to be. And now I've, I think I've got more of my my sense of humour back. And um, your perspective completely changes. You know, it's um, that that is that is true. It's, it's not a, it's not an epiphany. It's just a case of you know, for me, that's that's my person. That's my my personal story, and I'm not afraid to share it because I'm sure a lot of people will agree with it, and I'm sure a lot of people who've had surgery or not will disagree with it because everybody's different. And that's the thing you see. But for me, touch wood, touch my piano actually. <laughs> How has your relationship with music changed because of DBS? It's opened my, it's just opened my creativity. It's blown up wide open because then I can just play for longer. I was just playing in stints and recording bits and bats, bits and bats of music, but now I can sit down and play at the piano for, for hours now. So it's um, it's a gift, but it's a gift that keeps on hopefully giving and um, music something that I've got back. When you're sitting down and you're playing the piano for hours, where do you go? It just takes me to another place. It's um, it's automatic. It's something that you don't have to think about. It's um, DBS or not, it's something that just comes and um, very much something I've always enjoyed doing. And um, oh, thanks, thank goodness for DBS that I can um, I can actually see where I want to take it now, and that's that's to record more and more and more. So while well, I've got the time, can you play us a little something? Oh, I knew you'd say that. I saw, I saw, can you hear it? Let's have a look. Take away, George. What? Well, he's good. George is five, so George's got a new daddy, haven't you, George? What have you got? New daddy. New daddy. So how long do they say this will help? Uh, yours, I guess this is as good as mine. I'm sure they put 10, 15 years in it, don't they? The batch is worth 20 years, I believe, but um, who knows? Uh, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Wow, that's so cool to hear him doing well, playing with his son, playing with the piano, playing on the piano. I mean, that's really cool. Well, that was his intention. Like, what do you want to get out of this? Well, I want to I want to be a dad. I want to play with my yeah. kids. And I want to play the piano. All those things came true for David. Now, it's not the case for everybody. Like, not everybody reacts the same way David does. But he, I mean, right now, he's loving life because of DBS. That's pretty incredible to get something back that you thought that you'd lost. Yeah, it's it's really, uh, you know, as I weigh this decision uh, over the course of the next couple of years, it's like, Oh, okay. So you can get some of this back. Yeah, but, you can get those things back. You you miss them now, but you can get them back again. So back to Becca Miller for a minute. As yeah. I tried to wrap my head around all this, how are you feeling as a mom knowing you're in line for brain surgery and you have a seven-year-old daughter? Yeah, it's a little terrifying. I mean, I think that's part of it is I'm trying to get through a couple milestones and you know make some 
progress in my job, trying to have her be a little bit older and a little bit more independent, a little bit more mature, potentially, before I go for it. And then, you know, setting up all my support. Have you talked to CC about this? But that, no. No. No, I have not yet. No. She knows now, you. Have you talked to me? I've not talked to Cece about it, no. <laughs> Good. Good to know. Um, have we talked to Henry? But I think we've probably mentioned that because he knows Jim yeah. Smurden. And so we talk about Jim's surgery uh-huh. and that, that someday I may have to have that done. Yeah. Uh, but we don't know. I mean, it's yeah. not like, listen, I'm, I'm not taking all that medicine. <laughs> You're not quite as good as me. I'm Larry. not quite your level, but you know, give me time. <laughs> I love Becca. <laughs> she sounds like a great time. Oh, she she's one of my favorite people in the world. I'm curious as to what you're thinking after hearing Becca struggle to come to this decision to to DBS or not to DBS. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny one, right? Cuz I'm not in Becca's shoes. I guess my instinct is that I would trust my doctor. If my doctor said, hey, look, you might want to consider this as an option, I understand how it could be really scary for someone to hear that and how they might just sort of put up a wall right away and say, like, no, I don't want to hear this information. I don't want to do this thing. But I suppose, you know, we should keep in mind our doctors really do want the best for us. Yeah, and in this case, this is a great example of how doctors don't see things eye to eye. So her first neurologist is two years ago says, hey, have you thought about this? And her current doctor says, yeah, I mean, we can discuss it, but you, you've got another year before we really need to really hunker down on that. And so it, it is a they call it a, a, a practice for a reason. Like there's <laughs> there's not hard and fast rules, which is why it's important right. to have this dialogue with your doctors. Yeah, so true. Just having that conversation can probably reduce so much of that fear and concern as well. And you are in control. You, it's an optional surgery, which kind of makes it harder in some cases too. Oh, totally right. Isn't it easier sometimes when the doctor just says you have to do this and you go, okay, well, the doctor told me to. Uh, but when it. it's up, yeah. you, up to you to make the choice. Oh. No, really, I want you to dig into my brain. <laughs> uh, so I, I did mention Jim Smurton yeah. in my conversation with Becca. Uh, Jim's had Parkinson's for 12 years. He had DBS in June of 2014. So he's had it a lot longer. Uh, I sat down and peppered him with questions while my wife did the same thing to his wife, Dina Grinnell, in our kitchen. So now Jim can be difficult for some people to understand. He's had vocal issues. It's one of his symptoms. So I have altered the speed of his voice by about 5% uh, to be sure that we can hear his important story. Uh, I asked Jim first, when did the dyskinesia really kick in for him? My dyskinesia is really sitting around year four or five, and we're quite dramatic. It's severe. Lots of head rolling and cracking my neck occasionally spasms. So at some point, I'm guessing, when you were not having dyskinesia, you know, newly diagnosed, because mm-hmm. where I am, two, two years, two and a half years after diagnosis, um, it's... Uh, DBS for me is like, oh, boy, uh, I, I don't, I'm not there. Uh, I know it's available. I hope I don't need it. Uh, I'm not a, really a big fan of brain surgery. At what point do you go, God, I have to have this? By year six, after a couple of years of severe dyskinesia, I was like, can you get me in the line? I'd like to have this. When can we do it? You open me up. I need that device implanted now. Was that uh, decision jointly made between you and your wife, or was that uh, solely made by you? Well, there's no real sole decision, but you're right. <laughs> was she as supportive of it as you were? Absolutely. 
you're always hopeful that right. everything's going to get fixed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and you know, DBS was a remarkable experience. So you mentioned that you were 50-50, that you were both on board, that it wasn't even a question. You're like, yes, let's just do it. Yeah. Did, were there, what kind of fears came up for you? Well, you know, the doctor outlined the, the certain risks that have been known to occur. Um, a catastrophic stroke is a risk. It's mm-hmm. a very, very small risk, and it's particularly a higher risk the older you get. Mm-hmm. So we had to assess his young age and, and relative fitness as a deterrent there. So that was, but that was one, you know, you're kind of always aware that you're doing deep brain surgery. Right. Um, <laughs> we were afraid there would be no benefit. Sometimes that happens. So you go through it all uh, and nothing happens. Um, that's challenge. That's a bit of a challenging one. And then the, the, the place that the doctor spent the most time with us was on the possibility of personality change. And, um, people have been known to have fairly dramatic changes in their personality as a result. Then there was, for me, just this whole, um, the anxiety of knowing that he had to go through that surgery, it was going to be hours, he was going to know that they were drilling into his head, Mm -hmm. right? So that's that's the psychological part for me that was pretty incredible to anticipate. What was the surgery like? What takes me through it? You're awake for the first five hours of surgery on the brain. They drill holes into your brain. What did you hear when they drilled a hole in your brain? You hear everything. It's, it's especially loud because it's echoing your ear bones and whatnot. So you drilling, you smell burning, you... It was the clearest memory I think I could ever have of anything was having a, having a drill go in your head. I did say, you know, what can I do? Can I be there? What? No. And I was like, no, nothing for you to do. <laughs> you got to leave. I'll call you in seven hours when we're done. Seven hours. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that was a that was a remarkable you know thing to do to have to just sit back. You you feel completely powerless. Mm-hmm. You just have to wait. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, so three or four hours of that, they put the probes in, they test the location and the depth and whatnot by turning them on and asking you to do your little hand movement. And when they're happy with that, then they knock you out with the, under general anesthetic to wire the probes down through the side of your head, through your neck, into the battery that's put into the chest. So you have a pacemaker in your chest, yeah, for your for your DBS. Yeah, and it's a battery that needs replacing every three years. Every three years. Mine is every three years. Yeah. So you have to go back in for they have to take it out surgically. Yeah, they just unzip you. And wow, just unzip you. That's nice. The place where they put the pacemaker on the chest was actually a little bit more sore that was a longer place to heal he joked with he joked with his doctor after he says you know i knew you had to drill um, holes into my head but i didn't realize you had to put the wire to the pacemaker in with a shovel (laughs) 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 he said uh, because he could feel it all the way down yeah he could feel it all the way down sensitive but of course at that part of the surgery they knock you out right Mm -hmm. you're under anesthesia for that Um, but yeah that was sort of the more challenging part of the healing process was actually this other infrastructure Mm -hmm. Um, everything healed brilliantly and he was uh, I think very pleased 
I want to go back to that moment where they're drilling into your head, mm -hmm. and you can hear it, and you can smell the burning flesh. And you feel those drip of something go down the side of your head and coming off your neck, and you're wondering, is that brain fluid or blood? Do I need that? <laughs> Do I need that? <laughs> Was there ever a moment when they're drilling into your head that you're like, did I make the right decision? No, I it was like it's like bungee jumping, Larry. Once you jump off that platform, you're, you're committed. So, you have the surgery. What do you feel? I actually felt really good for the first year. For the first year. Yeah, I didn't take any any medication for Parkinson's for the first year. And when I told Doctor Honey and Doctor Salsa that the. the <laughs> They, they were a bit shocked. They said, that wasn't our plan. I said, that was my plan. <laughs> then, of course, you know, then then what? Uh, we were watching for a lot of symptoms. You know, did, did he have a character change? Has his physiology changed? What's going on? First thing he did is he gained about 15 pounds overnight. Uh, yeah, which yeah. was kind of surprising. Um, but it was this, yeah, the whole metabolism shifted. He wasn't vibrating 24-7. He says that his character change was deliberate, but I wouldn't say that it was. Okay. And I can talk about it now because Jim's back to the guy that I married. But mm -hmm. there was a period of time for the first year or two when he wasn't quite the same guy. In what way? Um, he had, he's got a very gregarious character. Um, he says that he was um, more deliberate about having a bit of a devil-may-care attitude about life, in part because he says, go ahead, you know, you go through deep brain surgery and see how you feel when you're finished, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. it was a little bit of just, you know, um, take every day as it comes and, you know, be yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that his character would have it that he was callous, and he was callous. Mm -hmm. And it was a remarkable shift from a person who is not a callous person. Yeah. Um, and um, he was always so wonderfully steady Eddie, and he wasn't in those couple mm -hmm. of years. Um, mm -hmm. And like I said, he says, no, that was deliberate, but I think, no, it wasn't. <laughs> um, but that, you know, if that was the worst of it, you know, it, it made for a few trying days, and you kind of had to take a deep breath and just be patient, mm -hmm. um, hope that it wasn't permanent. Um, and sure enough, it wasn't permanent. I think over time, as his body has normalized and gotten used to this, um, mm -hmm. he's back to his old self. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thankfully. What are, what are people's reactions to you that don't understand what's going on? Uh, I don't really know. I don't care so much. I mean, part of my wife tells a story that... The DBS surgery made me less patient. She says as soon as I got the surgery, I was more rushed. I wanted to get things done. I was, I was not patient with her. I wasn't patient with other people. I, I don't think I lost my patience. I think I lost my... my I just I give zero fucks. And how are his symptoms now compared to what they were before the EBS? Different. 
right? So here we have DBS, and it did a wonderful intervention for a time. It's now we aren't in a place where we can compare. How would it be now with DBS or without? But the disease is marching on. Yeah. And um, so unfortunately, after that first year, he started taking mm-hmm. low doses of Cinemet again a couple times a day, and he, he begrudged those days because he knew he was going back into the phase-in and phase-out existence. Now he's at about eight or nine um, pills a day versus the 20 that he was at before. So it's much less. um, And he tries to moderate um, the change well, but no, his disease is progressing and um, it's now affecting his balance. He's got balance issues in the sense that he can't keep up with his limbs, right? His upper body will be moving, his lower body won't be moving, and he'll tip. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's constantly dealing with, with that these days. Um, his speech is getting softer, right? It's mm-hmm. just marching on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, I think the craziest part of that is listening to him describe what it was like to have DBS surgery, to be able to feel it, smell it, experience it while they're drilling into your brain, yeah. for lack of a better term. Well, so, and there's different types of DBS surgery. And so the, the, the surgery that Jim got it would be the surgery that I get here in British Columbia, which is you're conscious for most of the operation until they uh, embed the pacemaker under your skin, which is what he said actually hurt the worst. Being awake for DBS surgery is not the case everywhere. So like in the UK, David Sangster, they knocked him out. He was done with the surgery in six hours. Well, why do they do that? Why do they keep some people awake for it That's while the, others get to go under? You know, they're, they're constantly evolving the procedures for DBS in the different countries. Certain things have been approved or not approved. Okay, know. let me ask you, what would you rather? Oh, would you rather I don't be, be awake. Oh, cold I for don't want to be awake. <laughs> you no. don't want to experience that? I don't want to experience that. Um, so uh, I, I, in talking to Becca, we, we finished our chat with really uh, how ready is she to move forward with this? You know, considering best outcome, it sounds absolutely delightful. Um, <laughs> just amazing. I mean, one, to have things be constant and more predictable, which it sounds like with the um, post-surgery that it is the neural stimulator that you can kind of keep it more even that's at least in my understanding um and and that you might get more sleep mm, i mean sleep. i yes i mean <laughs> i mean eight and nine hours of sleep is what i sit and daydream about <laughs> um so that sounds just amazing and and it feels like in, in some ways you know in some ways, it's like, oh, it's last resort. It's, you know, the last kind of... In other ways, it feels like a reset and a, and, a, and a gift of time. It's a very interesting time for DBS. To learn more about the procedure and to understand the advances that are being made around deep brain stimulation, I talked with Jamie Hamilton. She's a senior associate director of research programs for the Michael J. Fox Foundation. What exactly does deep brain stimulation mean? Deep brain stimulation is considered the most commonly performed surgical treatment for Parkinson's, and it is an invasive form of brain stimulation where electrical impulses are actually sent to the brain that targets those specific regions in the brain that are involved in the motor disturbance. So after someone does deep brain stimulation, how long do those positive effects typically last? 
Well, it can vary from individual to individual, um, but there is a, a significant amount of research that suggests that the therapeutic effect on motor function can last almost up to 10 years, which is really great and can help um, a lot of people manage their symptoms a little bit better. How long has deep brain stimulation been around for? It was actually approved by the FDA um, for Parkinson's tremor all the way back in 1997, and then for specifically for Parkinson's symptoms in 2002. And I imagine that it's probably evolved a lot over the years as well. Oh, yes, definitely. When it was first approved, it was only for tremor in Parkinson's, and now it's available for many more symptoms. Researchers are currently actually working on the next generation of devices, which is a really exciting time for DBS research, and one that could even program or adjust stimulation based on the individual's own response. The Michael J. Fox Foundation is actually funding a research project called um, the DBS registry led by Dr. Juhi Jimenez-Shahed at Mount Sinai. And this registry is really designed to collect information on all aspects of DBS, who gets which system and in what part of the brain is being, you know, um, addressing which symptoms. And its goal is really to help doctor and patients make more informed decisions about deep brain stimulation. And we really want people to gain as much benefit as possible from this and avoid and hopefully minimize as many risks as possible. And the more we know, about that, the better we can actually do that. So there's a lot of exciting things going on and evolving as the technology continues to advance. Now, I think it's kind of interesting as well how DBS is used differently in different parts of the world. For example, in many places, DBS is not usually conducted until it's deemed that a person's lifestyle has been severely impacted by their Parkinson's. But in the United States, In some cases, it happens at a much earlier stage. So what is kind of the prevailing theory around when a person should start using DBS? Well, again, there there is really no strict window of time which someone can or should undergo DBS, but the exciting thing is that there is research going on right now to actually see if intervening at the earlier stage of disease progression may have greater benefit for those. Um, there are a number of clinical trials that are exploring this, but we just don't know yet um, exactly when would be the right time um, to intervene. It really does vary from person to person. Each week, Larry and his wife, Rebecca, sit down to talk about the episode and to check in on how each of them are doing. I'm hoping if I get the surgery that I can play piano like David Zangster. Just magically? Maybe put a wire over to the left and tweak something. (laughs) While you're in there, can you just (laughs) give me the ability to sing opera? and (laughs) Understand quantum physics perfectly and... So how are you feeling about DBS now, honey? I'm I'm on the fence as far as my emotional reaction to it. It's not a it's a pretty complicated thing to consider you having brain surgery. That said, it's also very the idea of you having a better quality of life for longer is very exciting and hopeful for me. It's probably of all the surgeries they could possibly perform on me, the <laughs> least one I'd want because I'm awake while they drill into my head. <laughs> For those who may not know, Larry has a minor needle phobia. Really doesn't like the idea of things going into his body. 
so drills and needles and things like that. Like he's like his skin is. You can. I'm watching his skin crawl right now, just thinking about it. Yeah. So uh, so there's that. <laughs> Something but, to keep in mind. And then it's optional. I mean, it's like, well, so do you do that? Is that? It, it, uh, is, you know, you you hear David Sangster, and it's life changing. But for how long? We don't. You know. The, you know the the prevailing wisdom is you know maybe up to ten years. Okay, well, that's significant. That's mm-hmm. another decade Yeah. of great life. And I'm not sure that it's there's any time that we're, that it's, when it's too early to consider that. I think it's, you know, do you wait until it's so bad that it seems like a last resort and that you there's no other way that you can deal with the symptoms so that you're getting a little bit better for a shorter period of time or whatever? Or do you take take the risk and have it younger so that you get greater benefit and then you will have a better quality of life when you're feeling productive and engaged and you want to do all these things and your your children are younger and we're younger and we can do more things with you. Then you've got then you you're getting a, a greater lease on life in that way. You're getting more time back. <laughs> what do you need, bud? I mean, we're taping. What's going on? We're just grabbing cars. Okay. Okay. You know what we're talking about? No. Brain surgery. No! Okay, goodbye. Okay, goodbye. So we got some work to do there. Right. Well, we don't need to, you know, we have years before we need to talk to him about that. Ultimately, I want you to do what you need to do to improve your quality of life. It's your decision. You're dealing with this. 10, 20, 100 times more than anybody around you, even me and Henry. So you need to make decisions that improve your quality of life. I know you can't. It, I would never ask you not to consider us because that would be impossible for you. Yeah. But as much as you can, make this decision for yourself because if you're feeling better, we all benefit from that as well. We want you to feel better, more comfortable in your skin and in your body. And if that happens to be brain surgery that... that helps that and doing it sooner than later is feels like it would be beneficial then go for it i think a good sign is is when dr squires brought it up i didn't start crying and tell him to shut up right <laughs> that was so funny <laughs> stop talking now you can stop talking now <laughs> And I, I, I guess I, you know, I have the trepidation and the, the fear, uh, but I also, you know, I, I see the great things that it's bringing to David's life. That you know, Jim, Jim got five years back of his life. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, Becca put it eloquently. She's like, it's a gift of time, and and to to me, the you know, all those things outweigh my own silly fears of needles and hearing saws going into my head and drills into my brain and well what i know is that those fears will become less and less once you feel you really really need the the surgery and if there's some way i could mic it up it would be great for the podcast (laughs) how can we turn this into audio content (laughs) welcome to my life ladies and gentlemen uh, Can we get four cameras in there? Or... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so uh, we'll check in with Dr. Squires in six months and see where we go. All right. Sounds good. I love you. I love you, too. Next time on When Life Gives You Parkinson's. 
Uh, my name is Brett Parker. I'm uh, 51 years old, and I was diagnosed with Parkinson's about 13 years ago. My day job is executive director of the New York City Bar Association. By far, the craziest thing I ever did was the World Marathon Challenge, which is seven marathons on seven continents in seven straight days. So you have you, you've, you've got Jimmy Choi on American Ninja Warrior. I was not expecting Parkinson's. It was the furthest word from, from my mind. I even swore at my doctor, um, you know, you're effing crazy. Got Tim Haig, who won season one of Amazing Race Canada. I call Parkinson's my new best friend, whom I hate. And uh, <laughs> we just try to live try to live together in some semblance of peace and uh, move on and, and fight back against it every day. You know, these, you're all examples of people that are doing things that you probably shouldn't be doing with Parkinson's, uh, but it's inspiring and it's you know, drawing attention to it. Why is it important for us to have bigger-than-life moments like that uh, in order to raise awareness for Parkinson's? This is When Life Gives You Parkinson's, a Curious Cast podcast. Our presenting sponsor is Parkinson Canada, parkinson.ca. Special thanks to Becca Miller, David Sangster, Jane Sangster, George Sangster, Jim Smurden, Dina Grinnell, Rebecca Gifford, and Jamie Hamilton from the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Also, special thanks to our promotional partners, Spotlight YOPD, the only organization in the world with the singular focus of raising awareness of young onset Parkinson's disease. You can find them at spotlightyopd.org. And in the U.S., Parkinson's IQ Plus U. This is a free series of Parkinson's events from the Michael J. Fox Foundation to educate and empower people with Parkinson's and their partners. Go to michaeljfox.org slash PDIQ. And of course, thank you for listening. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, give the show a rating and please leave a comment too about why you enjoy listening to this podcast. You can also engage with us on social media. We see you there on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Find us at Parkinson's Pod on all those platforms or email us at parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca. We would also like to add your voice to the pod. We invite you to record your message at speakpipe.com slash when life gives you Parkinson's. Keep positive. Keep exercising. Keep listening. We'll talk to you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.